the accidental engineer welcome all max mountner of the accidental engineer here today we are joined by none other than kurt kaiser technical evangelist at datadog and author of make art with python uh so for our audience that don't know what you might be evangelizing over at datadog what exactly is it datadog is a uh, monitoring platform and it's kind of shifted over to being an observability platform in general Observability is kind of, in my mind, sort of the next step for the tools we need to be able to build software at scale. Uh, so when I started my software career, I could fit my entire application's architecture into my head and kind of reason about changes in general. Um, but over the past few years, we've sort of shifted to running our software on hundreds, if not thousands of machines. And with microservice architectures, we're kind of moving away from systems that fit into any one person's head. Uh, so Datadog kind of builds the software that lets us expand and go beyond uh, software architectures just, that just fit in one person's head. Uh, so we build tools that allow you to see changes to your infrastructure, changes to your software architecture in real time, allowing you to debug and see what's going on. Speaking of how much simpler it was when you started your software engineering career, what was, what was the start of your software engineering career? What, what's the tale? Uh, so the software engineer beginning of my career began in kind of starts. So uh, I got accepted to a private school um, at a pretty young age where we had a, a, a very nice computer lab and a very nice computer science program. Uh, so I think in eighth grade, I was exposed to Linux machines and kind of the very first all Linux computer lab. And so I kind of jumped in with Turbo Pascal and C++ on a bunch of Slackware 3.0s and got a chance to really start playing around with computers and programming in general. Got pretty burnt out on computers in general by the time I was around 17. And so when I turned 17 and I was deciding what to do with my life, uh, I sort of made the decision that civilization was bullshit and it was time for me to escape civilization and run away to the rainforest and start focusing on something called permaculture, which was a way to save the planet, uh, basically. Um, Dude, so boo civilization, man. Like, I, I think we all get that. I think everyone can vibe with with how you're feeling at 17 yes of course um so yeah so i at 17 i decided no i'm not going to go to school i'm going to go to the rainforest instead so turned 18 uh booked a ticket a one-way ticket to costa rica uh hiked out into the middle of the jungle and met some people and stayed on this kind of permaculture farm uh on the border of panama and costa rica on the east coast how is your language abilities? That seems terrible. Terrible. Really um, <laughs> in, in hindsight, this was the worst possible plan. And, you know, an adult should have stepped in. Uh, but, you know, they didn't and it worked out. So I kind of got to the last town uh, before this place that I saw on the Internet. And I kind of hung out there waiting for somebody who worked on the farm to show up. <laughs> and you know in in my young naivety i uh 
assumed, of course, somebody who works on this this permaculture farm is going to show up in the town outside of the the jungle and offer me a way in and offer me a place to stay. But no, they don't really leave, yeah? Yeah, and so so it all worked out. I ended up meeting somebody about a week into hanging out in the town outside of it, and I went in and I ended up staying there for almost a full year um, right in uh, Gandoka Manzanillo Wildlife Refuge. Can people find this on a Google Maps? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely on maps. It's definitely a real place. It exists. I think it has a pretty decent social media presence now, which I don't know if it existed before. The place is called Punta Mona, uh, where I stayed. We'll include a link in the show notes for the extra curious. But yes. your 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 return back to quote unquote civilization wasn't wasn't super abrupt, was it? Like no. So yeah. so from from there, I actually hung out for a year. Um, there there's a really nice surf break, and it was kind of living in paradise and living in the place that everybody kind of imagines escaping to like when they become, <laughs> you know, impossibly successful. Of course, of course. Uh, but it was really at that point that I realized, um, you know, for me personally, the thing that was important was the relationships I had with other people. And so kind of that, that, you know, that dream of escaping away and having paradise, uh, sort of dream, uh, died for me after having lived it very early uh, and realizing that the thing that was important to me was kind of my relationships with people and trying to do my best to improve the world through not isolation, but being around other people in general. Uh, so yeah, so I ended up leaving the the farm and actually took a veggie oil bus uh, back up through Central America. And then I came back home for a bit and started farming in Vermont, did a season of uh, organic farming at a small market garden in Vermont, and then uh, decided the next year I was going to hike the Appalachian Trail. And so attempted to do that and got about 1,200 miles in. And at the end of 1,200 miles in the Appalachian Trail, I was pretty broke and decided I needed to do something for money, uh, preferably something that didn't require a lot of time because I had a lot of other things I wanted to do besides work. And so that kind of led me back into programming. And that's when I started freelancing. Well, we'll get into programming in a second, but what, what were the things that continued to hold your attention that uh, made you want to minimize so aggressively your time spent on money earning activities? Yeah, so it was, it was a couple of things for me. Um, film photography was a big one. Uh, but the biggest one really was skateboarding in general. So I really just wanted to focus on skateboarding and doing nothing else. And being broke got in the way of skateboarding. <laughs> and so doing software development and doing freelance was a way to do, you know, hypothetically, uh, you know, very few hours per week of, you know, actual work and have the rest of my time free in order to be able to do the thing that I really cared about, which was skateboarding. So being in the, the literal forests of Central America to uh, organic farm in Vermont to hiking Appalachian Trail, what what was your process back to modernity, modernity in software engineering? Because Turbo Pascal and C++, by the time you re-entered the software engineering workforce, probably 
had passed their their peak popularity what what was your what was your path back to modernity in software engineering yeah so another one of those things that i was really into and cared a lot about was writing and so i actually started writing and i started a travel site and so that was a php based joomla based um site that i created at first and so Kind of building things had always been the exciting thing about software development for me. Uh, the idea that you can just have a concept come into your head and then start building towards it and then actually create something that's outside of you um, was is, is what really draws me back to software engineering over and over again. And so that's kind of what led me into it. It wasn't sort of, I'm going to go look for somebody to give me a job so much as it was, I want to go create this thing, and I'm going to go create this thing. So less, more of an active approach to it than sort of a, I need somebody to give me a job, and I need to figure out how to get somebody to give me a job, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Was was the, the Joomla travel site a money-making money, money endeavor? or? Uh... Yeah, for sure. So I, I got lucky pretty early, and I got... Um, on the front page of Dig a couple times, uh, and this is this was back when Dig was pretty pretty big deal. <laughs> That's something that a lot of, uh, a reference that I think a lot of our audience will be lost on. So for people who don't know what Dig was or how big a deal it was to be on the front page, can you break that down for a moment? Yeah, it's it was like a more. <laughs> <laughs> There's no nothing I can say that's going to be very flattering, uh, <laughs> safe. But it was it was a very exciting Reddit, basically a, a very exciting. There was um, a video that was uh, created weekly. It had a show, and it was kind of the top things on the internet. And the internet was a bit smaller, and social media didn't really exist. So it was more of you know all of the internet's eyes are on this list of things uh, every week, and so. Having, having your, your site front page meant that you got the internet's eyes, which was monetizable back then. And so what, what was the path of monetization from how you ended up on the front page of Dig to maybe how you made money off the travel site and maybe why, why you stopped the travel site? Yeah, so a um, couple things. Uh, when I was traveling as a, as a young kid, Traveling is not as expensive as you imagine. Um, as you get older, uh, travel can become more expensive because you kind of have living standards. But, but as a young kid, at least for me, I didn't really have standards. I, I lived in the rainforest in a hammock. If I had a hammock, I was good. The, the real issue is, you know, uh, I, could, I could crash with friends if I needed to and I could cook my own food. So expenses were really minimal. And so in hindsight, I think that one of the, the superpowers you can give yourself when you're young and you're kind of um, looking for how to maximize your possibilities, and especially if you're doing anything ambitious, I think minimizing your expenses is a really underrated approach in general. Um, so I was able to make it work with really small expenses for, for quite a while. Um, that being said, I liked working even less than you could ever imagine a teenager like working. Um, so it was more um, distraction and wanting to do other things than build and focus and grind. Um, and I don't know if that's just 
a younger part of me that didn't want to build and focus and grind or didn't know it was a possibility or didn't know it was at the other end of it. Um, but yeah. It seems like the subtle undertone there is that the travel site didn't make a tremendous amount of money, but it made enough that you were super stoked that you could afford to do what you wanted to do. Is that fair? Yeah, for sure. I could afford to do what I wanted to do. And I could also uh, pick up freelancing if I needed to have, you know, a larger sum at, at one point. And I think uh, that's a nice segue into uh, how terrible I was at freelancing. Dude, I, <laughs> at, I, I, think, at I think I personally would love to hear about that because I've, I've had my, my first professional programming experience was as a freelancer. I, yeah. had, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't write a contract. Uh, yes. It was through a family friend. Oh, 100%. 100%. I, so give, I, us, give, us the, give us the story. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think when you're beginning, you kind of, well, obviously, you're super insecure about what you're doing and you feel like an idiot and you feel like nobody should really have to pay you anything for what you're, you're doing. <laughs> And I mean, to to a large extent, that's true. You are an idiot and you have no idea what you're doing, but th that never goes away in software development. Um, so <laughs> you kind of need to do a few things. I think um, once I got the hang of it, the big things were um, going after good clients. So don't go after people who are looking to pay the least amount possible. Uh, those people tend to be uh, traps in general. Um, somebody looking to pay the least amount possible or very conscious about cost for something like that um, tends to not understand the true value of what you're doing. And as in software development, we tend to underestimate the time sinks that we have. Um, so rather than billing per a project, which, is, which was my initial approach, uh, billing by time, and making sure your client understands that software isn't a, a finished product. It's something you have to keep building and you have to keep maintaining. And it's not just a finished product uh, at the end of any amount of work. So um, it sounds like so you may have gotten burned by some, some people as freelancers often are, maybe like with non-payment or arguments about the, whether your work is done. Was that the exactly. case? Exactly. Um, so, so as far as either one of those go, I think that um, becoming very selective about who you allow in and is the the way to go. Uh, the real question then is, you know, how do you find those decent people? How do you find those decent companies? And honestly, the way to do it, and the thing that's been most effective for me, is to kind of write about what you're doing. I think. Uh, it's a real opportunity for anybody getting started is to start writing and sharing and kind of either making blog posts or making videos and showcasing what you're doing. Just because there are so few people making things and putting them into the world compared to people who are passively consuming things in the world. And as soon as you make the switch to becoming an active producer of new things in the world, um, you sort of become a magnet for other people's eyes. And the fact that you're doing anything puts you out there for other people doing things. Um, I know personally, when you, when you start doing things and putting them out there in the world, there can be a, a lot of embarrassment. Like um, 
you know, people's comments on YouTube, people's comments on your blog posts, they can be brutal, they can be really bad, and it can hurt your your feelings uh, initially. And I think that that resistance there keeps a lot of people from even trying. And that just gives you even more of an opportunity. I cannot agree more. And I just want to highlight for audience members, I get asked often how I select guests to bring on the show. And it's a lot less uh, strategic or defined a process than some people might imagine. I found Kirk through his blog. Um, I'm personally interested in, in the types of art projects that Kirk works on and writes about and publishes about. And that's how I came across Kirk. And I cannot agree more about that distinction you can make between people who've realized how little gets produced out there relative to how much con gets consumed. And like you're saying, Kirk, I totally agree. You're doing things every day. The byproduct of that should be, you know, a record in some form. Like you, the thing you'll get surprised by is Kirk's highlighting how you might get, you know, mean comments or something. And the truth is you'll publish something and you realize nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, that is, that is the other problem. It's, it's yes, a, it's, there, depending on how rapidly you learn, there's this, there's this painful path to realizing who your audience is and what it is you want to communicate to that audience and yeah. what, what your audience cares about too. So yeah, I cannot agree more. And I'm so, I'm so glad this is off the beaten path for what usually is discussed on the Axel engineer. Uh, but I cannot agree more about when it comes to what young software engineers should think about in, you know, their free time or uh, when it comes to producing versus consuming content about your craft, about anything. Yeah, totally spot on. Totally agree with you. Yeah. The, the one other thing I'll add, um, because it's super counterintuitive too, um, you know, whenever I have an idea for something that I want to create or make, and I think it's a really good idea, it tends to not do so great. Whenever I put out things that I think are like, you know, uh, this might be interesting, a lot of times those will be the ones that take off. So um, there can be a lot of overthinking that goes into creating things. Like something might be really small to you that you've been focused on and working on for a while, and it might seem insignificant. And sharing that little piece, you really don't know the collective conscience, conscience as much as you think you do. Um, so I would say err on the side of making more things um, rather than less things. And so I think, Max, actually, you do a really good job of kind of eliminating the friction um, between getting somebody on the show and sort of your processes in general. Oh, thanks, man. That yeah. segues perfectly well <laughs> into the, the two, two topics that I'm curious about hearing from you, uh, besides your backstory, which has been freaking awesome to hear about. The first is Make Art with Python. We got to plug your book. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about what the idea was there, um, how they can buy it, uh, what's in the table of contents? Yeah, so uh, a few years ago, I, I took this. So there's this... Um, biohacking uh, hackerspace in Brooklyn. And I took a course there called Biohacker Bootcamp. And so this place is called Genspace. And it's 
super awesome place and a super awesome building by amazing people. And while I was there, I met some high school seniors who were working on a project for the International Genetically Engineered Machine Competition. Uh, and so these were super, super cool, super smart kids. And I started talking with them and I asked them about software engineering because in my mind, software engineers are the coolest kids. Uh, maybe genetic engineering kids are also cool too. And in talking with them, I found out that software engineering students are considered the douchebags at school. <laughs> and, and they're really considered to be kind of sort of the overachieving, I need to kill my grades and I need to kill my score and I need to get into the school. And um, that kind of was a shock to me because if, if that was kind of the perception of software development as sort of like, you want to make money, you need to focus on this and you need to just go after it. I don't think I would have gotten into software engineering uh, as a young kid. Um, and so th the idea behind Make Art with Python was to kind of sell to myself as a teenager the idea of software development. Um, so rather than kind of focusing on, uh, there's this thing called big O optimization or focusing on your loops and your data types, I kind of wanted to take more of a creative artistic approach to software development. And I wanted to basically teach the fundamentals of programming through drawing and art rather than through, you know, basic loops and math and sort of the grind of how a lot of high school education can be in general. So for a sneak peek of maybe the types of projects that you uh, enumerate in the book, what are, what are the types of things that people might learn picking up your book? Yeah. So I, I think the, 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 the fun, easy com to communicate thing is we start by drawing a single pixel on the screen. And so by drawing a single pixel, we get to see how to call a function, what a function is, how you pass in parameters to decide where it goes. And then using that, we can use a for loop and then create our first line. We can use that for loop to create a function to be able to draw a line anywhere on the screen. And so it's kind of this, this iterative approach of starting with a pixel, drawing lines, figuring out how to take in user input and just kind of step-by-step step introducing concepts in a way that they're both visual and immediately actionable. So you can start to play around with the programs and we go and add very small steps at each uh, point along the way and you can immediately see it. And so at the end of the first few chapters, you've got a drawing program that you can use controlling using your keyboard. And then uh, we move on to using the mouse and then by the end, we're starting to be able to generate our own tessellations from scratch. So kind of building upon things to get a lot of the initial programming concepts uh, understood. So the creation and authoring of this book is something you did, I believe, before your most recent role, joining up at yep. Datadog. What led you to technical evangelism? I don't think you'd ever done that before. Uh, for audience that don't know what it is, maybe what is it? Yeah, so technical evangelism is a totally new thing for me. I think it's a newer thing in general in the software industry. Um, and 
depending on where you're at and your background, I can be, I think it can be different things for a lot of different people. Uh, so for me personally, I had come from a uh, backend engineer uh, background. So most recently I'd been working at a healthcare startup. I'd done a few iOS apps that had done really well. And so in working on the book and writing more blog posts to support marketing the book, um, I kind of found my thing that really makes me happy and sort of I'm pretty decent at. And, and so that is trying to communicate technical things to people and also ha trying to have conversations with people in general. Uh, so the technical evangelist role is, is a lot of different hats to wear. Um, at, on one point, there's kind of paying attention to the product as it evolves and finding the, the places where things are terrible for people. Um, and when you find them, trying to use sort of soft power. Um, so using soft power to sort of lobby internally to <laughs> basically guilt people into improving the product in the places where it's terrible. Um, and, and also to have kind of that, that open honesty and trust with the other developers internally to know that if you're bringing something up, it's probably really an issue and you've definitely researched it. And here you, you're basically bringing everything to the table that, you know, you've done the work and you're, you're getting it nine tenths of the way and you're just trying to get that last little 10th bout. Um, so besides that, there's, there's, there's speaking, there's working on new projects, um, to kind of showcase the, the product that you're, you're working with. And um, the most recently I've been focused on building these interactive workshops in a platform called Katakoda. And I think that that's really kind of the most exciting thing for me right now is building out applications that are broken uh, <laughs> instead of attempting to work um, and having those broken applications be broken in such a way that you sort of learn how to fix real world applications and real world distributed systems. Um, so that's kind of what it is right now. I don't know if I really described it at all. No, I think you did a really comprehensive job. I, one of the phrases that leapt to my mind as you're describing the first part is in representing the customer to, you know, the product team and influencing the product development process to either prioritize bugs or features. The phrase I've heard describe this is called voice of the customer or voice of the customer. Uh, like there's, I guess in, it has some overlap with what is a recent name for customer success and making sure that customers are successful when they actually use the product. Um, but I think for by and large, people might imagine evangelist being like evangelizing and like uh evangelizing to the unconverted <laughs> religiously yeah yeah uh, i think even within the the kind of industry there's a bit of uh you know rejection of the term because the the connotations of the word evangelist um and you know i don't really dwell on titles or, or names or anything i'd much rather um, see what somebody does than, than their title. And, um, yeah, I think speaking down to people and, um, preaching sort of like 
knowing the answers is not an effective way to do the job at all. I think you have to uh, understand that your customers are incredibly intelligent, especially at a place like Datadog. Um, incredibly intelligent people. Um, and so you kind of just have to uh, be ready to listen in general. And so I think technical listener would probably be a better title. Or you're, um, you're, a, you're, you're a medium. <laughs> you're like yes, a psychic technical medium. medium. Yes, technical psychic medium. <laughs> I feel your aura and I will pass it along I, to exactly, the product manager. Exactly. I, yeah, I, I, will, I will update my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> technical medium. I like it. So I, one thing I, I'm curious about, and I think uh, many people who are software engineers, you know, you're, their target market for Datadog, they're pitched on a lot of developer tools, even if they're free, like, you know, a programming language might be. But uh, everyone's kind of familiar with the watering holes of the industry. Like you might read certain portions of Reddit or Hacker News, uh, Y Combinator's forum. Uh, but what are what are kind of the watering holes for evangelizing a system monitoring product like a data dog? Like, who who, where does the target audience kind of situate itself? Hang out? Like, what what do they do? Yeah. Um, so there, there's a really great set of conferences called DevOps Days, and so we've been attending DevOps Days uh, a bunch. Um, I recently spoke at DevOps Days Raleigh, um, and. That was an incredible conference, incredibly well done um, in Raleigh. And that was kind of my first real stay around the Raleigh area. Uh, but besides that, a, a lot of it is sort of this event-based marketing where, you know, uh, wherever software developers are, are sort of congregating, doing a lot of in-person events and having the opportunity to get in front of somebody and showcase how your product works and letting your product sell yourself has kind of been, so far, the way that Datadog really sells itself in general to those people and finds those people. So a lot, of, a lot more of event-based marketing than what you would expect. And from my perspective, I think event-based marketing in general is a um, really incredible way to get um, very awesome return on investment and I'm not so much speaking about Datadog here as I am uh, a recent event I went to put on by Vans and Thrasher, uh, which um, are two skateboarding companies. Uh, Vans makes shoes and Thrasher magazine is the largest uh, skateboard magazine. Uh, so they, they rented out a building in Queens in New York and they built a mini ramp and they had musicians come in and I'm sure they had a few thousand people roll through there, but each one of those thousand people is posting on their social media and kind of both brands get the sort of advertisement that you could really only dream about. I mean, if you're going for a pure sort of online media buy, you're not going to get nearly the sort of return on investment as you will from an event like that, where you have thousands of the coolest kids posting to their social media profiles and sharing with their, their other people and sort of building that, that brand coolness, if you will. Um, so I think event-based marketing is in, really incredible and really undervalued right now. I totally agree. I, I think one of the phrases that's been rattling around in my brain on this topic of you know marketing in general is the concept of earned media. 
That's mm-hmm. media coverage you earn from maybe stances you take or uh, public actions you make or statements and uh, the the free coverage you get from doing that. And that I think live events falls under that uh, umbrella as you're not uh, you know paying somebody outright to cover your event necessarily. Like you don't have a PR publicist who's running down the street passing out flyers necessarily. You might. It might be in combination, but um, I totally get that. And uh, I'm curious to see in, going forward in the future, specifically for selling to software engineering companies, a software engineering product like a Datadog, what those live events kind of take on. Because um, a lot of people who are software engineers day in, day out, their day-to-day you know, is reading documentation. <laughs> yeah, reading, for reading. sure. Yeah. So I think I think one thing we've done in the past is we, we do these uh, summits and uh, a, an event called Dash, which is our conference. And so for both those things, we do in-person workshops. And those have been super successful. So we, we work super hard in order to put in the time and effort to really give you an incredible use of your time to learn hands-on with a, a domain expert. And I think that that's a very effective way to do this sort of thing. Um, so I personally worked on building a workshop for our most recent summit in Berlin. And I think we had five or six other workshops that are kind of two hours, 20, 30 people in the room. And you all just work with the product and ask questions. And I, I think even just Besides the content that we generate, being in a room with other software engineers uh, from different companies is just an opportunity you don't really get very often. And there's a lot of really intelligent people around you. And there's way more software developers in the world now than you think. And I think getting them all in one place where you can all hang out and chat and sort of get hands-on technical and see people with different domains of experience uh, is really amazing for you in general. Um, In my software career, I never really worked at a company, except maybe one, where they would have sent me to a conference. Um, And so the the whole idea of doing in-person conferences is really a very privileged few who get to do it. And I think that that's something that I'm reflecting on now and trying to figure out how to scale right now is how can we give people really the dramatic benefits of what you get from being in person at a conference and meeting other developers and kind of having that camaraderie um, on a way that scales beyond just in person Um, and you know people lucky enough to work at the great companies that invest in their employees and send them to conferences definitely definitely i i have a similar experience to yourself where the places I've worked, very few of them, I think were, you know, pushing employees to spend company money on going to these live events and paying for, you know, 500 to, uh, over a grand and on a ticket. And I, I do recall my first software conference. I went to PyCon in Montreal, nice. uh, like nice. 2013 or something. That was a, I'd been a software engineer for a couple of years by then, but uh, I remember just vividly, distinctly, 
it actually wasn't my first conference, but it's the one that's most memorable for me is going to these talks. Like you got, you get your program, you get your schedule. There's multiple talks happening simultaneously and you have to choose between the ones happening simultaneously, which one you want to go to. And I was just getting so overstimulated that there would be talks and I, and one would be, you know, my favorite for that segment, I would just be too stimulated, too overstimulated to even go <laughs> listen. I was out in the hallway reading the documentation on the library that the person I just listened to talk about. And like, yeah. like, you, like you say, yeah, it's super hard to reproduce. And I, and I, it was the first time it, I'd felt that way, but often it's uh, just a, a really good speaker breaking down a topic that uh, you previously thought was insurmountable or, or too hard to understand. And I remember I would, I would pull out my laptop during the person's talk and I'd be reading faster than they're talking. And some, <laughs> somehow that, that was the stimulating part for me is like, whoa, this person's talking to a room full of people. Like this is important. <laughs> like, dang, yeah. they're right. This is really exciting. And yeah. I mean, I, that's I, the other thing too is um, so I think I'd only gone to one conference before I spoke at PyCon, which was the first conference I spoke at. Um, and yeah, that's that's the other piece. I talked before about creating content. Pitching stories and pitching talks is also a great thing for you to do in general. Um, and yeah, I think the biggest thing is uh, being compassionate for the, the people who are in the room there. And genuinely not wanting to waste their time and genuinely wanting to have them walk away with something that excites them and that makes them better off for having come to your talk. Um, but another thing I'd recommend is, is talking in general. Totally. Totally. We, we should plug a number of things. I want to reassure everybody that they should check out the episode page for uh, links in the show notes to like all of the things above we mentioned including Kirk's book. Uh, but are, uh, <laughs> are, are you going to be speaking publicly anytime soon? Are, are there ways people can look up how they can hear you speak? So the publicly? next thing I'm going to be doing is a, um, a live coding with AWS. Uh, and then I'll also be doing, in December, I'll be doing a AWS game day. Um, and so AWS game days are another super cool um, thing we're doing in general. Uh, so the way this works is generally it's around 100 people are in a room together and everybody gets um, assigned to teams of three. And basically you have a piece of software that's, that you've got to deploy to the cloud and it's going to start breaking and it's poorly written. And the quicker you can debug and fix the software, the more points you earn. And so you kind of get an opportunity to meet random people um, quickly debug in a new team and figure out how to fix infrastructure as it breaks in real time. So it's it's a bit of a... I could see it in a few years becoming a thing that people watch, like watching people fix infrastructure just to be able to see how it works. I think there's a lot about software development that is not necessarily the software, but more the processes and how you work and how you think. Um, that aren't really easily communicated in a blog post. Um, and so sometimes just looking over somebody's shoulder who's very experienced, you can learn a lot of tiny tricks that kind of really improve or, or, or show you things you didn't know. So 
Definitely, definitely. It, for the curious, there's actually a, a section on Reddit dedicated to this stuff called Watch People Code. And oh, nice. At one point in not too distant history, uh, me and my friend Ben Jacobson led a series uh, working through a distributed systems class. And every Sunday for upwards of three hours, <laughs> we would live stream ourselves working through the working through the uh, problem sets of MIT's distributed systems class. And those were tremendously popular. Like I, I, don't, I couldn't put my finger on why. Um, yeah. At one point, I accidentally clicked on uh, Ben's face on the Google Meet or whatever. And one of our live streams is three hours of Ben's face <laughs> and not our, not our computer screens. And that video has like over a thousand views. And it's three hours of Ben Jacobson, my good friend, staring at, <laughs> staring at his computer screen. So like, yeah, I totally agree. There's, a, there's an audience there. And I, I don't know why or when, you know, the the mainstream will catch on to that type of media for sure yeah it's it's weird too because software development is very much an introvert sport um you know you kind of have to be super focused when you want to be most effective and you have to isolate yourself off when you're doing a certain type of software development Um, and then you have to be able to communicate effectively when you're not doing that and so it's very much uh an interesting mix uh, of skills. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I want to thank Kirk for coming on the show. It's been awesome having you. This is probably the most distinguished episode we've had yet in terms of topics covered. Uh, I, yeah, like, like I said, want to encourage people to check out the show notes, uh, check out Kirk's book, uh, check out his code Kata. <laughs> Kirk, thanks for coming yes, on. Kata, but close enough. Right on, right on. Well, thank you, man. Thank you so much. Bye, Max. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.